If you're a real estate investor looking for the best advice for getting a mortgage in 2019, this episode is for you. Stay tuned. Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. Hi, and welcome back to the show. Thanks again for listening in. Once again, Andrew LaFleur here. If you aren't already, make sure you are receiving my weekly email updates for all things condo investing in Toronto. Just go to truecondos.com and put your name and email anywhere on the site to sign up. And if you found this podcast useful, if you've been listening for a while, or if this is your first episode, and after you listen to this, you found it useful, go ahead and share this with somebody that you know, somebody else who could benefit from the content that I'm putting out here. I'd really appreciate that. So on today's episode, Mortgage Jake is back. Uh, Jake Abramowitz excuse me, is back on the show. Uh, he's one of the top mortgage brokers in Canada. Very experienced, knowledgeable dude. And just a great guy to share and hear from uh, his insights on what's happening in the mortgage uh, marketplace right now. The main advice that I always give my clients, condo investors, is... The mortgage marketplace and the rules around mortgages and which banks are good, which banks are not, um, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, you know, strategies. The main advice on all of that stuff that I, I give people always is it's changing all the time. It's not a static, stagnant uh, world, the world of mortgages and especially the world of investment property mortgages. So you really have to be up on things. You have to have uh, many great contacts um, in your Rolodex to speak to and talk with. And certainly Mortgage Jake is one of those guys um, in my books. So always great to uh, bring him onto the show and hear what he has to say about what's happening in the market right now. And specifically, this podcast is going to be useful to you if you are an investor with multiple properties already. Uh, and you're looking to add more this year in 2019, it's not, again, it's not like it was three, four, five years ago. Um, the, the, the rules, stress tests, um, every, you know, interest rates, of course, amortizations, banks versus non-banks, brokers versus in-house banks. Everything's different. Everything's changing. Um, and so you've, you've got to keep on top of these things and you've got to have a great mortgage broker in your corner um, at least one, probably more than one, uh, but definitely uh, at least one in your corner as, a, as an investor, as somebody who's looking to have all, add multiple properties. Um, and don't also another message is, is don't get discouraged if you talk to one lender, if you talk to one broker and they tell you no. Um, don't get discouraged. That is a, a normal, common happenstance in the current marketplace, um, even if you are a AAA, amazing, rock solid, um, high net worth individual or client, that is a normal thing to hear from uh, from a lender right now. So you've, again, importance of having multiple great contacts and people working in your corner. And uh, Jake talks about that on today's episode as well. Just um, uh, his advice and tips on 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 for people who are looking at to get beyond, especially sort of four or five properties, which is traditionally where most banks will put the brakes on you and say no more. Um, but Jake 
uh, obviously knows that that is not the end of the story. And if, you know, there's many investors who have eight, 10, 12, 15 properties, it's just a matter of how do you get there today? How do you, how do you build that up today? It's different than it was what it was maybe a few years ago, but it's still very much possible. It's still very much doable. Um, and you can still, you know, get, build an amazing portfolio uh, with many properties and not nothing to be afraid of and nothing to uh, to worry about, but you just got to have again the right people in your corner. So, without further delay, here it is my interview with Mortgage Jake. I hope you enjoy it. Let's do it. Welcome back to the show, Jake. Thanks for being on again. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Love talking to you all the time uh, on social media, through emails, and uh, overall, just nice to chat and nice to kind of talk to your listeners who I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of them and uh, by mostly by phone, by email. And quite frankly, they're such good, cool, savvy investor types that, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of help them out as best I can. Great. So what are you seeing? I'm just curious what your thoughts are in general on the market. Uh, we've come off a couple of crazy years, 2017, obviously record smashing year and then 2018 a different market what are you seeing what are you sort of predicting how do you see this year playing out 2019 from your perspective yeah so i'm a i'm a mortgage broker who finances residential purchases for investors and end users couple of things i'm noticing number one the flipper community aka the person who's looking at buying turning a profit in about 12 to 18 months is finding it very difficult these days to find a property to renovate and turn over because the price of entry seems to be so high and there is such little margin and uncertainty with what is going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months in terms of the price direction of that kind of home. Secondly, there's a lot of value for investors and buyers outside the 416 core when you're talking, or at least what I'm seeing, when you're talking from a detached, semi-detached townhouse type of investment. And thirdly, we talked about this two years ago. We talked about it last year. The condo market is still the lowest hanging fruit for first-time buyers and for investors. And so it's always the most competitive market that I'm seeing just because it's the quote-unquote easiest market to get into. And we have two or three streams of buyers getting into that market. Like I said, we have the first-time buyer, we have the investor, and we have people now that are buying you know, secondary homes for their children or secondary homes for themselves. They have a 905 home. They're looking at having a downtown condo. So the most competition is still in the condo space. The downtown market in terms of east to west, Bloor West, the Lesbyville, up along the Young Subway line from a detached, semi-detached perspective is still very strong. And I just see as you kind of get further out, things get a little bit looser and a little bit weaker. But I think 2019 has started off great. We have seen a lot of rate decreases, which is going against what we thought was going to happen. Uh, early as uh, October, November, I was trending the bond market and seeing things just go lower and lower. And I was advising everybody who was buying at the end of last year to go variable because undoubtedly rates would have had to follow and they absolutely have. So we're down about 30 to 50 basis points, half a percent almost from the highs of the end of 2018 which is a very significant decrease in rates. And it's brought a lot of people back to the table where people have a lot more confidence now. We're also hearing a lot of chatter about stress test rules, changes, 
you know, uh, we've talked about this already. The election's a funny thing. All parties are going to come to the table and say, we want to make it easier for buyers, first-time buyers, investors, etc. So we don't know what the rule changes might be, but certainly there's a lot less pressure on them being more difficult and a lot of pressure on them easing up a little bit. So that will potentially bring a whole new stream of buyers out to the market if some changes happen on that end as well, which would increase affordability, increase qualifying, and make it truly easier to qualify on. So, so 2019, unlike last year, is literally the opposite. It started off with way more confidence, much lower rates, no more increases on Bank of Canada expected this year, maybe one potentially, although I doubt it. So how can it be, how can it be a bad year except for, you know, prices? Prices are just very high and, and some people just simply can't afford to get in. Yeah. One, we're one year, you mentioned the stress test. Now we're one year in, more than a year into the stress test now. Um, do you think it's time for the government to get rid of it? What's your personal opinion on the stress test? And, and it's, has it served its purpose? Is it time for it to go? What do you think about the stress test? So I, I did a, I've been doing some uh, chatter and, and, and discussions with clients who are renewing their mortgages who bought five, seven, ten years ago. Because a lot of these people, obviously, we work with uh, on the second, third go around. And, you know, just to be clear, the stress test has been around for a very long time in one form or another. Clients have always had to qualify at plus 2% if going variable. Now, what happened two years ago and last year, or I guess three and two years ago, uh, the stress test came in first for the crop of 5 to 19% down borrowers. And then last year, January 1st, everybody had to qualify under the stress test. What's funny is I agree with it partially. I understand why you want to make sure someone can afford higher rates. I get it. But this arbitrary plus 2% rule flies in the face of, of common sense thinking when rates are going down. We've seen one and a half We've seen, sorry, five increases in prime rate in the last 15 months. We've seen rates go up one and, a, one and a quarter percent. Now we're seeing the five-year fixed money come down. It's still up around a percent from where it was last year, but it's certainly not close to the 5.34% that we have to use to qualify. So I would like to see the stress test modified. I would like to see 30-year amortization. And if you want to define first-time buyers, sure, let's make it for them maybe or repeat buyers, no matter what, I would like to see 30-year M because of where prices are. And I'd like to see a plus 1% rule and a plus 1% on your contract. So if you're borrowing at, four, at 339, make it, can you afford it at 439? Because realistically, I don't think rates can go up much higher than what we've already seen. So if rates go up a quarter, half a percent, great. You're still showing you can qualify at plus 1%, not plus 2%. So those are the two changes that I hope the government will make soon. Although the high ratio borrowers, the 5 to 19% down borrowers, they're probably in line to have these changes made faster than the conventional borrowers who are 20% down or more because OSPI poured water on the suggestion that they will roll the stress test back. They said, and, and I'm going to quote directly from Carolyn Rogers, who is the superintendent. She said, we are not making any changes. This is what's not happening. So the two crops of buyers will have different rules, and that's just probably what we'll what we'll what we'll see this year. Um, you mentioned amortization. Can you remind everybody? Because this is a question I get a lot, and a lot of investors 
are often misinformed about what's possible with regard to amortization periods. So could you give us like a a 60 second Mm -hmm. crash course on what amortizations are available to end user buyers and to investor buyers today? Absolutely. So five to 19% down payment, maximum amortization is 25 years. You cannot be an investor at 5 to 19%. You have to have 20% down. So at 20% down or more, you don't pay the mortgage insurance premium. The CMHC premium is gone. You can amortize up to 30 years with the institutional lenders, BMO, Royal, TD, Scotia, everybody. You can buy a condo purchase as an investment with as little as 20% down. I know there is some confusion with how much I need for my investment, 25 or 30. If you're a well-qualified investor, 20% down is the minimum, and 30-year amortization is the max. Now, there are some alternative lenders, only a couple, that offer 35-year amortization, but the offset is the rates are much higher. They're usually 1.5% more, so it doesn't make sense to take that extra five years to pay the extra fees going with those lenders. 30-year should be your default calculation ratio and doing the math in terms of amortization. Nice. Thanks for clearing that up. What do you, a lot of, some chatter, you know, a lot of this talk in the stress tests and everything over the past year is the, the discourse and the conversation is around, you know, there's too much debt in Canada. We're a ticking time bomb, you know, uh, it's all going to crash down. The, the mortgage debt's all time high and things like that. Household debt. We see these statistics flying around. Um, and one of the components of that is, uh, is HELOCs and home equity lines of credits, um, people refinancing their homes they bought many years ago, taking out equity. Just curious what your take is on that side of the, the, the market in Canada in general. Do you have any major concerns about um, household debt and specifically HELOCs and, and people refinancing? Is that, is that something you're worried about? Um, so this is a two-part answer. <clears throat> First of all, the media does a great job of scaring us with respect to debt in general. What's really interesting and extremely aggravating for someone like me who has seen real estate and you, we've both seen real estate create a tremendous amount of the opposite side of the ledger, which is wealth. So when you are hearing that household debt is going up and it's on the first page of the report on business, which it is almost on a weekly basis, How often have we heard about household net worth increase? The last time I saw that article was literally a few months ago in the Globe and Mail, third or fifth page and a little tiny article. And that is really aggravating to me because real estate has been one of the greatest wealth creation tools we have seen and implemented for our clients. And it's never discussed in a positive light. Every time I see a tweet about HELOCs going out of control about investors, how much they have spent on their, on their mortgages and how much they're short a month, for example. You never hear about how much they've created in their, in their capital appreciation. So I, I am somewhat slightly concerned if rates were, have, were to continue to increase like the Bank of Canada kept saying, we're going to get to a neutral rate, which is around 25 to 3%, which is another 1% to 1.5% from where we are today. But there's really no impetus for them to continue increasing rates at such a rapid pace. I'm, I'm not seeing any decrease in credit scoring on averages because we talk to our lenders all the time and they tell us this is our portfolio. Our average credit score is X. 
And, you know, when credit scores re remain as strong as they are, 700 plus, with even the alternative lenders who are advertised as going after the subprime type of borrower, well, those are not subprime, they're prime in terms of a credit score. I'm not as concerned with things from a household debt perspective. Now, the HELOC argument certainly has been made, and it's the lowest hanging fruit for uh, the new regulator or the regulators to make further changes if they wanted to by limiting access to home equity lines of credit even further than they have already. That being said, a great majority, over 66% of home equity lines of credit right now are not being utilized at all. So although there is an available limit that you can use and tap into, the majority of people who have a HELOC don't even touch it. So I'm not that concerned about it either. They already have limited home equity lines to maximum 65% of a house value in terms of a refinance. They allow you interest-only payments, but you may or may not know some lenders on the back end have made their own tightening policies where with home equity lines of credit, if you're not using it, they assume you will use it. So they're underlying, underwriting you with a much more stricter guideline. And those are nice changes to see because the banks are acting in front of the regulator and they're saying, hey guys, we'll make our own changes so that you guys can keep your hands off you know, this market entirely. So if you're an investor, and you're thinking, hey, I'm sitting on a pile of equity here, you should consider getting a home equity line of credit sooner than later, because yeah. if the changes do happen, that option will be gone. If you're yeah. an investor and you deal with one bank and they say no, there's about 10 to 12 lenders that will give you a home equity line of credit. So don't feel like, hey, my bank said no, therefore others will say no too. But I'm not, I'm not concerned about household debt because slowly the government's been tinkering with the rules and slowly making changes, and yet we're not seeing any changes in the price structure of, of properties in the GTA to a great degree. So overall, it doesn't keep me up at night, you know, as much as the government overshooting the mark and making more stress test rules. Right, right. No, that's a great, uh, great summary of the situation. And like you said, it's if you're if you have equity in properties with the sort of tightening environment that we're in right now, and the debt aversion from the policymakers uh, that were the world that we live in. It's a good time. Like you said, if, if you have equity in properties, whether you have a plan to use it or not, it's a great time to set up a line of credit and have it, have that tool in your toolbox in case you want to use it as opposed to, you know, so they implement some new rule tomorrow and, and boom, you can't access that, that equity for some reason, the way they, they structure it. Absolutely. And you know, as, as you see every day, opportunity comes at you fast. You need yeah. to be ready to act That's and right. we need to have liquid capital. And it's really interesting that when I deal with a lot of buyers who are selling and buying, you know, a great majority of people don't have 30 to 50,000 available to make a deposit on offer. Well, think about an investor. You're looking in the pre-con market. Uh, you want to make an investment in a property. You find them an amazing idea, opportunity, and they need to have 10, 20, 30,000. Well, it takes three to five days to set up a HELOC. By that point, that opportunity may be gone. Why not have it at your ready? And like you said, a tool in the toolbox where you can say, yep, I got it. Here's a check. Done. You've secured the unit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great advice for 2019 for sure. Um, Jake, you're, you're well known for some of your awesome uh, rants on social media <laughs> about various issues, uh, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, I, I love following you and, and just hearing, hearing you rail against everything that's wrong in our, <laughs> in our industry and in the mortgage world. 
What are you fired up about this week? I'm curious. What is there something that, that you've seen lately uh, that you say, you know what, this has got to change or I'm sick of this happening or I wish people would stop believing this when it's not true or I wish uh, government would wake up on this policy or this uh, thing. What, what's got you fired up this week? So I'm going to tell you a few things. One very may, may sound biased, but it isn't. Uh, two clients came to me this week. Both of them were pre-approved for purchases from a bank. Both of them were told, you're totally fine. Your credit's good. Income's good, blah, blah, blah. Both of them went firm, and now they are both stuck. Because in one case, the bank said, I can use tip income to qualify you, where you can't unless it's in your income tax returns. And the second said, we forgot to include property taxes in your pre-approval. Now you don't qualify. And that really bothers me that the banks are doing a great job marketing the idea of a pre-approval done in 60 seconds, for example, or something along those lines where this is such a major investment, such a major life choice. You cannot only bank on, no pun intended or pun intended, you know, the advice of someone who doesn't do this all the time. So speak to a broker. The second thing that bothers me, and it's going to bother me until we hear about the elections is. Quite frankly, a lot of the empty promises, when a lot of the, the leaders of the three parties are all going to come out and say, especially the liberals, and this is not a pro or anti-liberal rant, this is in general politics rant, it's all about getting your vote. When you hear about the promises they will make, look further or speak to professionals like me and Andrew and see, is it even possible that the government can do this? For example, if OSPI is the regulator that regulates conventional mortgages and the parties all say, we want to make 30, 35, or 40-year amortization available, hypothetically. Well, OSPI is going to say it's not possible, so don't even try it. So that's what I, that bothers me that for three and a half years, we barely hear anything positive about homebuyers. Right. We hear stress tests, stress tests. We're going to make Tightening, it harder. restricting, Just, stop yeah, buying. And now, you, oh, you consumers yeah, are out of control. Stop behaving that's, that's like it. that. Stop wanting, stop wanting to live in it. a house. Got to make it easier for you guys because, you know, you've been yeah. really hammered by the decisions that we've made upon you. Yeah. And the worst part is the other parties are saying, well, if we were in power, well, no, when you were in power, you also made some tinkering. You also opened up the credit availability in 2008 and gave 40-year amortization and zero down payments, which I did those deals left, right, and center. And those people are all sitting on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of equity positions. But you know, they made it so easy that this current government had to roll it back a little and then they've overshot the mark. So from a personal perspective, get a second opinion on your pre-approval always. It'll cost you 15 minutes of your time. From a professional industry-wide perspective, look deeper than just the headlines of what the government wants to do and let's see if they can do it. So I'm going to be grading each government's policy promises and I'm going to say possible or total lies because right now we haven't really heard many of them. But I, it's, it just really bugs me during an election year. All of a sudden, they care about the buyer. Where, like you said, they were like, you guys are out of control. And now they're saying, wait a yeah. sec, the market's a little different. Bad dog, hey. bad dog. Yeah. And now it's like, and, oh, you poor puppy, you need to eat. Come here. Let me get you some treats. And you know, the, thir the third thing is, and you operate not just in Toronto, you operate all over, all over you know, Ontario. No, there are many other markets that have been more greatly affected by the stress test than just Toronto. We live in a bit of a bubble here not housing market bubble, but we live in a, hey, Toronto's number one center of the yeah. universe, which it is, the best city ever. But, you know, Vancouver's <laughs> been affected, other yeah. cities in, in the prairies, maritimes, et cetera. So the government may make some changes, hopefully, where they realize 
Toronto is a different animal. Let's make the CMHC limits one and a half million, not one million. Uh, Vancouver, same thing. And let's, let's help the other municipalities like the Ottawa's, the Kitchener, Waterloo, Guelph, Hamilton, where there are some good investment opportunities for investors. And, and hopefully they will kind of come up with some sort of rule changes along those lines. Maybe. Or, or maybe they'll just keep sitting on their hands and saying, Canada is a 6,000 kilometer nation, and yet we have one housing policy for everybody. That just bothers, it bothers me totally. Right. Same housing policy for Toronto, average price, a million, and Moose Jaw, average yeah. price, 200,000 or whatever. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, it's very strange. But nonetheless, I mean, those are the two or three things that bug me. And I go on social media to rant because I don't see these things covered oftentimes. And quite frankly, I just think a lot of what people like the, the anti-housing sentiment on there is so strong where I just, I just, I can't believe, you know, how, ne- how much negativity is on there, you know? Absolutely. It's great to have voices like yours out there spreading the truth. Um, let's, can you speak, I want you to speak directly to uh, seasoned investors, people who have, you know, four or five or more properties, uh, people who are building portfolios, who keep adding, who want to keep adding properties. What would be your... Um, what would be your main advice, tips, um, uh, recommendations for, 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 for investors like that who are looking to add multiple properties beyond four or five properties in 2019? Who, who, are, you, like, who are you seeing uh, in terms of maybe in terms of the, the best banks to work with, the best lenders to work with, maybe the worst ones or the ones to avoid? What would be, what would be some thoughts on speaking to that, to that person? Sure. So the first thing I want to say about people like that are, is I met, an, I met an investor client who owns six properties and she brought me a binder that was four inches thick almost. And it was the most organized, professional approach to investing I've ever seen. And to anybody who's looking at creating a portfolio, start with that. Start with being organized. Have everything printed, yearly tax returns, yearly lease agreements, property tax bills, maintenance fee schedules, because when you need to apply for a mortgage and you have multiple, multiple properties, being organized will make that application process so seamless and easy. So that's step one. Now, you're looking at creating a portfolio of of properties to invest in down the road today. Let's say you own one, you want to buy a second and a third. And I hear that a lot. I hear people saying, you know, I'd like to get into three, maybe four by the end of 2020, 2021, et cetera. Looking at both the pre-construction and the resale markets, the second thing you can consider, definitely open a holding corporation and try and buy these properties under your hold corp. A lot of investment banks, banks who are investing in this space, will take you a lot more seriously and you'll have more opportunity to spread your risk around with various institutions. The third thing I'll say to a lot of investors is don't just look at rate. Look at your yield. Remember, as an investor, If you're paying a slightly higher interest rate, that means you are writing off more interest against the income that you're bringing in. And that's a huge advantage to you because now you're hopefully going to be cash flow neutral on your tax returns and you won't pay any marginal taxes on your investment income from your properties. Fourth, remember, lenders are becoming more and more strict. The majority of them have a maximum five-door, six-door policy, but that's only internally. So, for example, a bank like a Scotia will say, we will finance up to six properties under your own name with us. 
Well, they may, be, they may do it if you have eight properties, five with them, two with another lender, and there you go. So don't just limit yourself to one, working with only one institution. The more you borrow from them, the less likely they will continue lending to you. Another idea that I've recently uncovered, which is a fantastic idea, if you own multiple, multiple properties, six, seven, eight, work with the commercial team of that bank. The commercial team may treat you as an investor. Yes, you have a full-time job. You're very successful at that part of your employment. But if you're working with an investment, a commercial side of the investment bank, like a TD, like a BMO, a RBC, that will look, they will look at your portfolio completely differently than the residential underwriting arm, where they'll be a little bit more limited. So those are the various things investors have to do. Be open to working with alternative lenders that will still finance you at 80%, no problem on your seventh, eighth property. Be open to working with a broker. Um, if you find you know, you're running into heads, headwinds with the banks, speak to the alternative industry like us, and we will help you figure out what's possible, what isn't. At the end of the day, the ultimate goal is long, long term. It's not, you know, don't, don't be worried about a 1% fee that you may have to pay because if that 1% fee will translate to a 20% return over five years or, or 10 years, well, fantastic. Good. It's worked out for you. So look at the big picture is what I say to every investor. I find a lot of investors get bogged down by the tiny details and are unwilling to pay the fees or unwilling to pay a slightly higher rate where they're not, they're not remembering that, hey, in five years, I would have made so much more of my money back if I did this investment today. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great advice looking at the big picture. It's mm -hmm. a, something I, I, I remind uh, investors with five plus properties all the time. That is, you know, don't get too focused on any one individual property, any one individual mortgage, any one individual interest rate or amortization that you're paying. Um, when you have four, five, six, seven, eight properties, um, you know it. it you got to look at holistically at your whole, whole portfolio. So if you have to pay a little bit of an extra premium on this particular property, don't worry about it. You you got an amazing rate on properties one and two. You know if if your cash flow negative on this one property, don't freak out too much about it because you've got plenty of positive cash flow over there mm -hmm. on properties uh, three and four. Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it might be. So just taking that holistic approach and like you said, um, understanding that uh, you're, you're, you're building something for the long term, you're building something much bigger than any one individual uh, property or, or mortgage that you've got. I mean, the same, the same thinking applies when you're talking to a stock investor. A stock investor has 10 you know, holdings in their portfolio. Right. Some of them are not doing as great. Some of them, the dividend's a bit lower. Otherwise, other of them, they're making it up. There's an opportunity to buy a premium stock at a premium price. Over the long term, it's still expected to do well. It's the same approach. Look at it as an investor. And, and like you said, if, if you can balance things out and have a long-term view and keep accumulating over that period of time, how many people that we know have done tremendously well doing that approach, right? Who just uh, specifically what what banks or lenders are you finding are the best at the moment? Because rules and and uh, policies of banks are always changing, right? And it's different every year. It's different every quarter. It seems, but at the moment, like if somebody comes to you with they say they have five properties and they they need mortgage number six or mortgage number seven, uh, where who who's playing ball with with those types of clients right now? Who who are you finding is good to work with? 
So first, I just want to explain to your clients that each bank has a different way of offsetting the rental income. A lot of my clients call me and say, hey, I own a condo. It rents for $2,000 and my expenses are $2,000. Therefore, it's a wash. Unfortunately, the banks don't look at it that way because they build in certain things like vacancy uh, rates, management fees, etc. So they all have a different way of looking at things. The bank that I'm having a lot of success with, with investors buying the fifth, the sixth, the seventh property is called Wealth One Bank. They have a very good common sense approach. And that's what we need is a common sense approach to offsetting income from an investment portfolio. Scotiabank is phenomenal as well. Scotiabank, although uses only 50% of rental income, it does not take into account maintenance fees, taxes, utilities at all. So it's almost like a 75 to 80% offset with respect to how they do it. Um, now, TD Bank has a great commercial arm when you're talking, you know, eight, nine, 10 plus. Same with RBC. And if you are a high net worth individual, and if you, your net worth is made up of properties and of liquid capital, whether it's stocks, investments, and other, you know, Manulife has a great net worth lending uh, arm. And the, and the major banks also have a great private banking. So if you do fall under the private banking guidelines, consider joining working with that department because they look at uh, ratio offsets a little differently and they look at net worth as a very strong key component. And obviously, a lot of the alternative lenders are fantastic at rentals. Equitable Bank, Home Trust, Optimum Bank. These are, these are very well financed, very well capitalized lenders that although they will charge you a slightly higher rate, they are phenomenal when it comes to offsetting the risk and offsetting the ratios. There's finally the credit unions. Meridian Credit Union's got a phenomenal self-employed investor program uh, called NIQ, non-income qualifier. It doesn't mean you can't have income. It means you make a really good gross income and you have expenses because you run your own business and the bank sees the common sense approach of using a number between your gross and your personal net. Now, they're a little bit more strict with respect to how many pro portfolio pro properties you will own, but they're still really good in terms of if it's your, you're getting into a second and a third, especially for the self-employed people. So I'll say if you're fully income qualified, you work for a Fortune 500 company or, or a company where you make good income, go with, let's go with one of the banks. If you're a self-employed investor, we're gonna go with one of the alternative lenders or credit union, where rate may not be the best, but you're gonna get an awesome opportunity to get into investments that you may not have with your bank. Jake, fill in this sentence for me, fill in this line. Real estate investors need a great mortgage broker in 2019 because? We have access to, and I know some say 30, the reality is we have access to 10 to 12 different lenders. We know how each lender will offset the ratios, and we know based on the client profile where that's going to fit. And not to mention, my turnaround, our turnaround in the broker community is, is usually twice as fast as the bank's. Because we, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The we banks are very slow. They're very slow. They're three right to five now. business days. You can never go firm. They have no clue if you'll, if you'll be approved or qualified. And I want to say one other thing to investors that I've recently discovered. A lot of investors have gone to their bank for a pre-approval on a pre-construction. Well, guess what? All of that information is sitting there. When you're buying a pre-construction property, and you say you've bought three units that are coming up due in 2019, 2020, 2021, and now you want to buy a fourth property. If you've gone with all of your business to one bank, that bank's going to look at all the other applications and say, sorry, you don't qualify for a fourth or fifth. 
If you spread your business around with different banks, you'll have a lot better chance. So be bank agnostic. Be results driven is what I say. And that's why, in my opinion, working with a broker who has connections inside his or her network and outside, and I work with some of the banks that don't necessarily work with brokers because we all have to try to get the deal done for the client. So we are, we are on a referral basis. So that, that's why, in my opinion, it's, it's a great idea to work with a broker to at least discuss the options. And if your bank's giving you options, compare them. At that point, is your good time to do that as well. Great advice. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, the, mar- the mortgage market and how you get a mortgage and what type of mortgage you get and, and who you approach and, and the process, it's very different today in 2019 than it was, you know, in 2017, 2016, 2015, right? It's uh, a lot of people who, who maybe bought pre-construction three, four years ago, and now they need a mortgage today. Um, what you know, we've talked a lot about it here, but like, what advice would you give them in terms of understanding how the mark, how mortgages and getting a mortgage has changed from three, four years ago? So it used to be, it used to be really funny in 2013 through 15, roughly, or, you know, before the good old days, as I call them, a client would call me and say, hi, my name is Tom. I got your number from Andrew. I bought a condo. What's your rate? Literally, I could tell them the best rate within 30 seconds to a minute. Now it requires a 10 to 15 minute call because I need to see which bucket they will fall under. If it's a simple first time investor, it's a little bit easier. The more uh, obstacles we face, now our lender choices may decrease. So the biggest difference between today and then is, again, sounding biased, but working with someone who does this full, for a living full-time, whether it's a bank broker or a mortgage broker, whoever, you're going to get the, the best options for you on the spot from that person. The second thing I want to say, if you purchased before the first set of uh, rule changes, so prior to November 2016, when the first rule changes were announced, you can still qualify using the old rules, which most banks have no clue that that's even possible. But it's under, it, they're called grandfathered because, or grandmothered or however you want to say the, you know, the, the, the way. If I purchase a condo that's closing in four years as a pre-construction and then the rule change, changes happen, the government made sure that those people were not going to be subject to the stress test. Now, some, some of them will be if they want to go variable, if they're investors, but not everybody will be. So remember, if you're having difficulty qualifying today because of the stress test, and if you bought before the first round of rule changes, there's a massive opportunity for you to work with a broker who will know which lenders will still use the old rules to qualify you in there. Wow. I, I, see, I'm learning here today. I didn't know that myself. I, I assumed that everybody was, uh, that that loophole or whatever you want to call it was gone and everybody was under the stress test. And, and it, it all depends on when you sign the contract. Because yeah. if you sign the contract at a time where the test was not around, Yep. Then the, plenty you know, of people the, did. Yeah. Plenty of people did. Yeah. Especially, I mean, now we're at 2019. Yep. So they're, they're still kind of in the 2019, 2020 time frame where they'll be closing and now they're getting interim occupancy, final occupancy, et cetera. Yeah. Now, now is the time to consider talking to a broker. If you purchase before 2016, October, October or November, one of those two dates, I'll, I'll tell you exactly and we'll, we'll tweet it out. But uh, you're still subject to qualifying under the old rules provided all else is equal, credit's good, income's good, et cetera. 
Um, one other thing that we haven't talked about that I wanted to say is the market opportunity. Assignments are still very popular, especially for investors. Yep. So a lot of a lot of people may be looking today in the market and, and finding assignment opportunities. Assignments can still be financed at the current market price and not the original purchase price. So that's an opportunity for people to consider up to 80%, so 20% down uh, for investors as well. A lot of banks, Scotiabank is doing those deals. Um, and so that's just another thing out there that's, that people can, can get a good deal on. Great. Yeah. As, so paying the, the, getting financed on the current market value as opposed to the original purchase price. So if you're coming in as an investor buying an assignment, uh, you don't have to come up with a massive amount of cash to close. That's your, right. Which is, a, which is a huge advantage. So some lenders are still doing that. That's good to hear. Yeah. Jake, it's been great chatting with you as always. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, which I'm sure they will after listening to your insights here, what is the best way for them to do that? So facebook.com slash mortgage Jake. They can always call me or text me at 416-910-4448 or email me. It's jake at mortgagejake.com. Very simple email address to remember. I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Mortgage Jake as well. I'm on Instagram. You can find me anywhere in the world. You know where I'll be. And I'll be more than happy to speak to anybody that has any questions, any problems, any, even if you're asking for advice as a second opinion, believe me, you know, not every one of my clients obviously closes a deal with me. My goal is to kind of, like you said, speak the truth, debunk some myths, figure out option B, option C. And especially if you're running into problems with your bank, if they're taking forever to turn around, if another broker is not giving you what you're looking for, speak to me. I'll tell you if it's a good deal or not, and hopefully we'll establish a long-term relationship. So uh, Mortgage Jake is my name, and that's where you'll find me all over the place. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much, Jake. All right. Talk thank you. you. Talk to you soon. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.